Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. and welcome everyone. I see that everybody is still trickling into the live version of this meeting. So welcome to the February 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. I would like to take a moment for a special thank you to our sponsors, Limer Education and ESO, for making it possible today. As always, I'm Remley Crow, and today I am joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, Dr. Bill Toon, Michael Caduce, and we are over the moon excited to have with us some of the authors from today's paper, special guests, Dr. Adam Ostema, Adrian Nichols, and Justin Allen. And as a reminder to you all, the article that we're reviewing today is Emergency Medical Services Stroke Care Performance Variability in Michigan, an analysis of a statewide linked stroke registry. And this was published in JAHA, or Journal of the American Heart Association. Uh, as always, our article will be paired with an article written by our very own Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. Uh, encourage all of the listeners to check out that article. It'll be on emsworld.com under education and training. A couple more reminders before we dive right in. Uh, you can, you as listeners who are here on this live version with us can enter questions into the chat feature on your screen and we'll bring those into the discussion with us as we go. So thank you for your participation there. And with that, I will welcome our special guest. So thank you all for taking the, the time to be here with us today. It's always so exciting when we have with us people who lived this work and were behind the scenes on it. And I would like to start off by having you all just take a second and introduce yourself. So if you don't mind, we'll start with you, Dr. Ostema. Uh, hello, thank you so much for inviting us and for having us. Uh, it's always nice to hear that somebody reads uh, our papers. So my name is Adam Ostema. I am an emergency physician and I work and practice in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I am a researcher with MSU in the Department of Emergency Medicine with a focus on epidemiology. And uh, for some time now, I've had a particular interest in um, stroke care and the intersection of quality stroke care and pre-hospital care and things that we do before a patient arrives at the hospital that make a big difference for us in the ER. So that's my background. Fantastic. And Adrian. Hi. Hi, everybody. Again, thanks uh, for inviting us to join you today. Um, I am an epidemiologist, and I'm also the manager of the Michigan Stroke Program. And we're funded by uh, the, the Paul Coverdell National Acute Stroke Registry Grant through CDC. We've been funded to do this work um, for several years. And more recently, we started to develop the methods to link the state EMS data file to um, the hospital stroke data that we uh, collect from our show partners, uh, our hospital partners. Um, so I hope we get into that a little bit about how we actually use this information uh, to improve data quality and care uh, with our EMS partners as well as our hospital partners. Absolutely. It's fabulous work and we can't wait to dig into that. But let's have Justin introduce yourself first. Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, Justin Allen. I work uh, with Adrian Nichols. I'm the EMS Stroke QI coordinator with the Michigan Stroke Program. 
So I work closely with our EMS agencies, uh, providing stroke data and working on, um, you know, quality improvement projects that a lot of our partners are uh, need assistance with. So happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. It's great to have you here. And I love that this paper is so good at showing how we blend the worlds between research and then actual improvement science. So putting it into action, there's plenty to dig into. So I think let's remind our audience exactly what it was that this study was trying to accomplish. And maybe if any of you have a little bit about what made you decide to take on this question in the first place. Well, maybe I'll take the lead on that one. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the mission of the uh, Michigan Stroke Program is to improve uh, stroke outcomes for patients who suffer stroke in Michigan. And so uh, for a long time, EMS has been recognized as a critical link in that chain, but EMS remained heavily siloed away from most of the infrastructure that was being used to improve stroke care. So really it started the moment a patient hit the hospital door. And so our, our goal in beginning this work some years ago was to integrate that leg of stroke care into the overall process of trying to improve the speed and the quality of, of treatment. And so to do that, we needed to combine some databases. But after we did, we realized that not that much was known about um, what care was being delivered to whom or, or which things that we were doing in the pre-hospital setting might matter. And so that was kind of the impetus for doing this particular analysis. That's fabulous. And I know we spend a lot of time talking about the cardiac chain of survival, and there actually is a stroke chain of care, and EMS is a huge piece of that. So I love this focus on the pre-hospital side. So with that, our objective exploring patient and EMS agency level contributions to variability in care, I'm going to go ahead and invite our panelist, Dr. Tony Fernandez, on, and we'll dig into a little bit how you went about achieving this aim. Good afternoon, all. And I, again, I want to thank the authors for joining us. I think this is a really interesting study, and I'm looking forward to uh, diving into it with you. So um, <clears throat> I, I, this was a, a retrospective observational analysis, um, and you used some interesting databases, and we talked about them uh, just briefly in the introduction, but I'd really love it if, can we, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the Michigan EMS Information System and the Michigan Ac Acute Stroke Registry? And I'm particularly interested in um, how you developed your linkage between these data sets. Maybe uh, I think Justin probably knows the most about uh, the Michigan EMS registry, and uh, Adrian certainly knows the most about the Michigan stroke database, and maybe I'll cover the question of how we combine the two. Yeah, I can start with the the Michigan EMS Information System, or MIAMSYS, that's our, our state data repository. So um, a lot of our EMS providers will use different software vendors, such as ESO and all these other different software vendors. And as they submit their data, it kind of goes up to the state um, repository that we call MIAMSYS, or the Michigan EMS Information, Information System. Yep, and so um, the data collection system we use for the hospitals that participate in our program. And we have we have many hospitals in Michigan that participate now. Um, is the American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines stroke data collection tool. And so that's what we use to collect performance data. There's a lot of demographic information. Um, and that's what we use to link the two files together. 
Yeah, so the, each of these two databases really represents clinical data collected at the point of care that someone uploaded. In the case of EMS, the upload tends to be more automated. So this information, as you are likely aware, uh, gets put into different EMR software and then gets sort of automatically uploaded and mapped to a, to a state level repository. The, the stroke registry data is more manually abstracted. Some of the elements come in automatically, but each hospital employs someone who literally goes through charts and uploads and, and audits the information. And, and it's sort of, it's got many more catches to make sure that what is getting into the database is accurately reflecting what's available in the EMR record. But they're both dependent on clinical documentation from those of us who are providing the actual care. Uh, in terms of combining the two, um, the problem with combining these two databases is that there isn't any one identifier that is present in both of them, like a name or a social security number, so we can just tell who is who. And so we had to come up with a, a kind of a statistical way to um, calculate the probability that any two records represented the same individual. So we basically used features like their age and dates of birth, what hospital they were treated in, what day they were treated on, and we came up with an algorithm that sort of incorporates all those things and calculates a degree of match between a record in EMSIS and a record in the hospital stroke registries. And then we had a manual cleaning process to sort of weed out extra matches and matches that were obviously wrong. And um, so we actually had a whole separate paper specifically addressing the, the mechanics of that and the match results. But the bottom line is about two thirds of the time if we thought a case could be matched to the to an EMS record, it was. Uh, in the other third of the time, it may be that there was something erroneous recorded in one of the records, or it may have been simply a matter of uh, uh, records not matching up properly. So um, that's kind of my summary of how those two got together. Yeah, and I think matching uh, more than two thirds, I believe, is what you had in the paper, almost 68% um, with the identified data. That's that's really impressive. So. Um, yeah, kudos to you all and your system there. That's um, that, that's that's great work. Uh, and so your the it sound it looked like in the paper about fifty seven percent of all strokes admissions were captured in in one of your data sets. So um, you had a really robust uh, amount of data to play with, um, and I think you did a really good job uh, weeding through these data. So you had a study um, period from January first, twenty eighteen to. Uh, June 30th, 2019. And can you tell us a little bit about how you included patients into your study? I can take that one uh, too. So the, the sort of defining population is the, is the stroke registry. So um, each participating hospital is required to um, uh, basically identify all of their stroke admissions, which they do using discharge codes. Uh, and then and then that was our starting population. So the time frame that we picked was really more of a convenience sample. It was a, uh, a period of time that this is actually a match that we do on an ongoing basis. But in the early stages of developing our match process, we picked a big chunk of time in order to kind of perfect our matching, our matching strategy. And so this is the 18 months of data that we use to develop that process, but actually we continue to use that on an ongoing basis to basically follow these types of numbers through time in our in our state. One other thing we had to do was make sure that we weren't um, including any hospitals that are currently sampling cases. 
Um, so we wanted to make sure we we took them out of the the linkage as well um, because that can really muddy things. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So you looked at uh, among your your population, you looked at performance on uh, six measures, and um, the, your measures were uh, documentation of a pre-hospital stroke scale, uh, glucose check, uh, uh, EMS stroke recognition, an on-scene time of less than or equal to fifteen minutes documentation of a last known well, and as well as pre-hospital notification. Um, I think while uh, intuitively those sound like really important measures, uh, some of the things we like to tease out here is how, how did you come to these specific measures? Um, what, what was the decision making behind those? I can add one thing to start. Um, so those are the measures actually that were suggested for us to track um, through our grant from CDC. So those are the the six measures or five or six measures that um, CDC is asking us to report to them. Um, so that's sort of where we started, and seems to be uh, the information that the uh, that our partners are interested in seeing in the reports that we provide. So, yeah, quality measures for pre-hospital stroke care have been somewhat nebulous over the last fifteen years. Uh, we started with none. Uh, but we had a number of different guidelines that had been published suggesting practices that make good sense. Most of those hadn't been um, carefully studied, although there was some observational data in support of several. Uh, but a lot of it was just expert opinion. We just kind of got everybody together and said, well, what's a good idea for a patient you know, on scene that we think has a stroke? And so these measures are, are closely tied to those guideline recommendations, which I'm sure is why CDC was interested it's not an exhaustive list. Other people have suggested things like whether or not lights and sirens were used or whether or not an IV was placed or uh, something about response times, you know, maybe dispatched to, uh, to 911. So this, this isn't an exhaustive list, uh, but we felt like each one of these things we could make a good clinical argument for, and they each fit into that um, sort of guideline framework that we were falling back on. And if I can add to Dr. Osma, um, a lot of these measures do follow what our state EMS protocols have. So they do kind of mirror what our e we are re requiring our EMS providers to do if they do suspect a stroke. I also want to congratulate you. Uh, wonderful stuff here. Uh, I, I was having trouble absorbing all of the different uh, things that I, I wanted to ask you about because it's exciting to see actual uh, data and uh, really see kind of how patients are being cared for. I, I do wonder though, when when you were talking about stroke care and it's common as we as we are training instructors across this country that they're still teaching things that may not be cutting edge or may not be part of the state protocol. Did you ever consider uh, just looking into, for example, how many people still are just blasting oxygen uh, to every single stroke patient and how many patients maybe are getting are getting a 12 lead or not? I noticed the glucose, but um, just curious as to whether that was in the back of your minds. Yeah, that's a great question. That, that sort of falls into the category of additional measures one might look at. Um, I don't think that we've specifically looked at giving oxygen in the setting of a normal pulse ox reading, although that has recently been looked at by another group who looked at, at national level data. Um, 
we have looked at uh, IV placement and EKG acquisition. Um, we didn't include them in this particular measure, but they are things that we have in our in our data set. Um, the uh, I think I think we're going to see some sort of evolution over time on which things we think are best to measure. And some of these measures are things we want people to do, maybe, and some of these things are things we don't want people to do. Uh, anecdotally, I, I, at least based on that other uh, national level analysis, there's a meaningful minority of patients who probably get oxygen unnecessarily, but it's not a huge number. Um, so it's really just kind of come down to what the uh, appetite is of every, how many things do we want to look at and which things are our priority to intervene on. Wonderful answer. And I, I do think it, it's uh, for those uh, folks that aren't uh, familiar with research, right. this concept of starting with the punchline, starting with the answers. So you started with patients who had confirmed strokes. So we know these were actually uh, patients that that um, required this kind of attention is a way of, of kind of reverse engineering. Did we catch them, all right? Did, did, did we identify them and did they get the right care? Um, so nice job. Yeah, and thanks for chiming in, Dave. And uh, one of the things that I'd like to talk about as we talk more about your population is you made some, um, some I think, very important exclusions uh, when, when you were determining who your population should be for your analysis. Um, you excluded patients with a, uh, door to CT time greater than I believe about six hours or um, nonsensical times less than less than uh, zero minutes. Um, you excluded folks who did not have a CT performed, and there was one individual uh, who didn't have a diagnosis, and that makes sense to exclude those. Um, can you walk our audience through how you made the decisions for those exclusions? Um, yeah, certainly. Anytime you're dealing with a large data set, especially a semi-administrative data set like this one, um, one thing you have to kind of grapple with is that not everything in there is perfect. There are erroneous things. Uh, there are um, sometimes patients that you didn't intend to capture in the way that you pulled the data. And so, uh, for example, with the CT times, uh, we are really interested in looking at pre-hospital care in the subset of stroke patients for whom time really matters. So that would be, for example, folks who that could get uh, a thrombolytic or maybe a hemorrhagic stroke patient that we wanna recognize quickly. And so we excluded those who had really long door to CT times because some of those folks uh, probably either developed their symptoms in the emergency department, which is hard to weed out, uh, or after a hospital arrival, or perhaps uh, those were situations where the ER determined that the situation was not urgent. Uh, if they're willing to wait six hours, it's hard to make a strong argument that EMS should have done something differently. Uh, and so it's, we're trying to zero in on this population for whom the pre-hospital care is going to have the biggest impact. And as far as irrational numbers, uh, there are times that you'll get probably a keystroke error into the database that makes the doors to CT time look like it's negative 5,000 minutes or something like that. And uh, so since we have no way to go to the original records and vet out those problems, then we're forced to simply exclude them. But fortunately, there were not a ton of those particular types of errors. Yeah, I think those are really important exclusions. And um, so let's move on to your analysis. I, I think that um, your analysis was really interesting because 
a lot of studies that we'll look at, we'll look specifically at either patient factors um, or we'll look at some, some provider factors. But what you did in your analysis was you not only did you look at patient level factors, but you looked at EMS agency level factors. You looked at um, uh, variation based on hospital level. And one of the really interesting things that I haven't seen before um, was that you actually even looked at the variation based on the EMS uh, PCR software vendor. Um, so can can you walk us through a little bit of uh, your analysis plan and, and kind of why you thought it was important not just to uh, look at EMS agency level variation, but the, the others that you that you include in your analysis? Sure. From uh, from the, the development of this research, I you know, this project uh, was very much kind of an exploratory type analysis. We wanted to describe what we were seeing with pre-hospital stroke care and then just explore what might be out there that could explain variation. So the goal was to cast as wide a net as we could. We don't know everything about characteristics that are likely important to the care of these patients, but we tried to include any variables that we thought were reliable and could logically be expected to be a contributor. And we wanted to try to partition off the um, agency level effects from the from the patient level effects, just because we're dealing with such a diverse population across Michigan. Uh, stroke patients likely differ by where they are. EMS agencies certainly differ depending on their background and the populations that they're dealing with and the hospitals they're interacting with. And so stroke is a very diverse disease process. And then we had the added complication of de dealing with many diverse EMS entities and health systems. And so the hope was to try to parse out as much of that statistically as we were able to. Yeah, and I think that the, the analysis was sophisticated and robust, and I think it was appropriate for your question. Um, so again, uh, I... I a lot of times have the unenviable task of holding folks up to getting to um, your really interesting results. But before we do move on to the results, I'd like to open it up uh, to our other panelists who may have some methods related questions. I do. So I have, I have just one question. As we get ready to move into the results section, talking about the study setting in Michigan within an acute stroke registry, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the agencies and the hospitals that participate in this, and could there be differences between them and hospitals that may be less likely to report into this registry? So I can take the first part of that. Um, so the hospitals that participate in the registry um, are pretty representative of all the hospitals that per that throughout the state. And so not only do we have comprehensive centers, we have acute centers, um, we have primary stroke centers, um, and we also have centers that are not certified. And so um, I think the range of uh, hospital bed size or hospital volume is all the way from like 25, uh, 25 beds to um, I think it's a, a, like a thousand or 1200. So it's quite a um, range in terms of what hospitals are capable of. Um, and also, you know, we've got um, <clears throat> lots of hospitals that are continuously trying to become, you know, the next level certification. Um, but we have some really great um, uh, monthly calls where we have a lot of um, uh, discussions uh, across the board about, you know, different issues that people are experiencing. Um, 
but yeah, we have we have quite a range of hospitals in 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 terms of their capabilities and the number of patients that they see. Um, in terms of EMS partners, I don't know if Justin, you want to talk about that one. Yeah, with EMS, we have quite a few partners too. Um, I think in the state of Michigan, we have about 500 different EMS agencies, over 200 are transporting capable agencies. Um, so we're really uh, fortunate to have just a, a wide range of partnerships with either rural agencies or you know municipality-based uh, agencies um, throughout the state. Yeah, if anybody happens to be following along with the paper right now, in table one, we do break down some of the characteristics of agencies and hospitals that were involved. So you can see some of that diversity. We do tend to skew a little bit toward um, primary stroke centers, uh, but that's also because a lot of stroke patients wind up being treated in a stroke center of one kind or another. Uh, and so Adrian can tell me the exact number, but it's it's a hefty portion of the stroke patients in Michigan who wind up in this database one way or another. Absolutely. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind that this is actually, as we move into the results, a large sample and a lot of variation in what was available in which regions and things like that. So ultimately, there were over 5,700 patients included in the analysis. And as Dr. Osama just mentioned, the table here has characteristics. This is table two with who was included in the study and uh, just general background. You know, I would look at this as an epidemiologist and say, hmm, does this pass my gut check on? Are these patients I would expect to see with stroke? And so a couple of things I'll call out and I'll let the authors, if you see things here that we should be thinking about as we proceed into the results, is that it's generally an older population. So you can see here in table two that approximately a quarter of the patients were in their 70s and then another 35% were 80 or older. And then we can look at uh, the types of strokes these patients were experiencing and the majority, about 83%, were actually in the ischemic stroke cohort. And so I think that's something also for us to keep in mind is, are these the types of signs and symptoms that EMS will likely pick up in the current stroke screening instruments that are available? And typically we are you know, biased towards the ischemic stroke scales. And I am interested too, and maybe Justin, you have some insight on this, is is there variation in which stroke scales are being used in the state and, and protocols around stroke detection? That's a good question there. So there are currently a few different stroke scales that are being used. Uh, primarily, though, it's a Cincinnati stroke scale. Um, we do have a few uh, agencies that are um, testing out different large vessel occlusion scales. Um, and then also BFAS, so kind of just a addition to FAST, looking at the balance and um, vision disturbances is also being used by just a small amount of agencies. But primarily throughout the state right now, it's the Cincinnati stroke scale being used. And I, I like to highlight that because with this research, the important piece was the, the measure was whether or not any stroke screen was performed. And so there is a little bit of research though I definitely have a conflict on some of it comparing Cincinnati to some of the more complex instruments. And we see that Cincinnati performs about as well. Uh, so I think that's something for us to keep in mind. The research is still out on which stroke screening instrument, but we do know that performing one is really important when it comes to helping get the patient to the right place at the right time. And now I will open up the floor to any of our panelists who want to come in as we go through the results in our discussion. Um, so I'll pause and see if anybody ask, wants to jump in. 
I was going to ask if you could describe uh, briefly the EMS systems that you looked at in Michigan. I imagine there's diversity in whether they're a BLS transporting agency, an ALS transporting agency, a first response agency where they're transferring care. Um, coming from Iowa, I feel like we flew a lot more stroke patients um, trying to get them to the right place at the right time. Um, are you seeing that diversity? I'm just thinking if we start to look at 12 leads in the future, we have to sort of exclude some of our BLS agencies who don't have that capability. Uh, any description of what the EMS systems are like? I, Justin may want to jump in here and help me out on this one too. I, so Michigan has a wide diversity of uh, EMS systems and it, um, the way that EMS is organized in Michigan is very region driven, um, but unified under state level sort of oversight and protocols. And so uh, depending on the region and its resources, there are uh, private EMS companies, there are municipal EMS agencies, uh, there are uh, areas that have a tiered response, meaning a lower, lower level of care dispatched to certain complaints and ALS reserved for more serious complaints. In other locations, uh, all ALS systems. So depending on which city you're in, uh, there's pretty wide diversity in, in the approach to EMS care. Justin, you have anything to add to that? No, I was just going to add to, like here in Michigan, um, we kind of have a... Um... Uh, kind of a rare uh, system set up. We have what's called medical control authorities. So, you know, a lot of states will have a, a medical director per EMS agency. But here in Michigan, we have, I think we have about 60 different medical control authorities that oversee the EMS agencies in their system. So you can kind of think of it as like little, little jurisdictions that oversee the EMS system within that area. Um, there's a board, um, they have uh, meetings, the board meetings that are set up, and then they are in charge of the EMS providers within that medical control authority. Um, so we have, although we have statewide EMS protocols, each MCA can look at the state protocols and then they could submit a change to the state. So if they, if they're doing a different type of stroke scale, or if they want to change their destination protocols up, they can submit that to the state for approval. So every MCA is just a little bit different um, in that regard. And are all BLS units allowed to do blood glucose checks? Just curious. Is that yep. a statewide um, skill? Got it. Um, I also was curious about whether or not in the registry there's some note about extended scene times because if one of the one of the measures is less than fifteen minutes on scene and we have access problems to a big mall or an airport or other venues that maybe don't, you know, nursing homes where we might not be able to get at the patient as quickly as we wanted. I'm just curious as to whether that was, that's, that's also pulled into the registry or no. So some of those factors are present in, in the EMSIS registry. We did not use all of the things available to us. For, for example, um, location of call. Uh, is is obviously and is something that is collected, but is pretty diverse. And one of the challenges that we had was sort of narrowing down which things we thought we could say something intelligent about it, which things we thought would just be really complicated to get at. Um, so some of that stuff is probably worth drilling down into further. For example, some of the measure the measure of uh, on scene time is obviously heavily influenced by ingress and egress issues. Somebody's in a nursing home, you know, it's not probably physically possible to get to and, and, and back out of such a facility. And even if you're moving extremely rapidly, 
Um, so there are there are some little nuances that that do get lost in the in the overall analysis yeah. or get homogenized into it. And no worries, I, I think all of us are trying to make make heads or tails of it. I I, I was curious because I was working a shift just uh, day before last and had to indicate why I was on scene for longer than twenty minutes. Um, and so, so uh, my agency tracks very carefully, was it because of access? Was it because of care? Was it because of uh, another uh, agency or whatever? So interesting. And I also noticed um, for Remley that we have a, a question in the chat about uh, just how, how did you decide which patients uh, sociodemographic characteristics to include in your analysis? Uh, so uh, interesting comment. That's a great question. Uh, and the answer is we tried to use as many as were available that we thought could be reliable. And the advantage that we have in using this match data set, sort of once you've been through that work, is that you have two potential sources for those types of data elements. Uh, there's the pre-hospital data, and then there's the hospital data for that individual. And so, for example, with race, we found that the missingness rate in the pre-hospital setting was very high. And there was a fairly substantial amount of disagreement with the hospital level data. Uh, it is a known fact that many of these administrative databases sometimes struggle to accurately classify patients according to race and ethnicity as the patient may identify themselves. But um, but that said, the, we felt the most reliable version of that was coming from the hospital. So that comes out of the stroke registry. Um, we obviously, uh, age being such an important factor and one that's really easy to measure, that made it in and no problem. Um, we didn't go as far as starting to assign, say, uh, external data about socioeconomic status. And there was not a robust uh, source of information about which specific uh, health insurance, for example, a patient might have. So we tried to look over our options and we took the ones that we thought we could either connect to it or we really wanted to see as long as we felt like we had a reasonably accurate source of information for those for those features. I love that conversation. I love that it was race and ethnicity got brought into the discussion as well because I think a lot of times we lean on it, oh the EMS data is no good because you know they're just writing what they see. Um, but it's important for us to consider when we're looking at questions around like performance to these metrics that we're not looking for a biological mechanism. What we're actually looking for is something social. And so the perception of race and ethnicity is actually really important and can be a valuable uh, piece to this. And so I'm glad that you all chose to look at it wherever we could find it present, whether that was in the hospital or in the EMS record. And having those two sources is certainly valuable. Um, and I would also be interested you know, in future work as you would dig into some of these questions like around missed stroke, uh, does language proficiency have a role in that? We know about mnemonics are available in English, but not always available in other languages. Uh, so lots of, lots of more questions are raised sometimes by the study itself, but that's an exciting place to go. We actually have a couple more audience questions in the q and I wanna get to. Uh, Dr. Antevi is looking at table two and sees that 65% of patients were transported to a primary stroke center. And so curious, do you have the door in door out times for those who actually required transport to a comprehensive center for something like a thrombectomy, for instance? Very good question. Super relevant to um, kind of looking at care networks and, and how do we deal with the current world. Um, the short answer is no, we don't have that, for it, particularly in this 
2018 to 2019 data set that we used for this analysis. It's one thing that we've been very interested in following. Uh, the difficulty that we found is that for a lot of the hospitals that participate in the stroke registry, uh, they are the destination hospital. And so um, we don't have uh, an enormous number of times that we can easily track a patient from one hospital to the next hospital within the network, in part because there aren't a lot of between network or, or within network transfers, I guess you'd say, or within participating hospital transfers. Um, the other challenge is that because these uh, data are de-identified, even if there was such a transfer, a lot of times it's really tricky to tell when a 70-year-old stroke patient at hospital A is the same as a stroke as a 70-year-old stroke patient at hospital B. And so tracking that is challenging. Oh, absolutely. Matching it once is challenging. Matching it twice is extraordinarily challenging. Uh, and with that, and maybe Justin, you have some insight into this. Are there protocols for bypassing primary stroke centers in Michigan? Is this a common practice or when the resources are there that you have both available? Um, that is a good question. Right now, I, I guess it would depend on um, the resources that the EMS agency had, what type of facilities were in their area. For the most part, though, agencies are kind of transporting to the nearest destination at this time. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to say that's how it is like all statewide, but for the most part, it's it's the nearest uh, facility that's in their protocol right now. So, and I'm just going to add, in Michigan, um, we're working on legislation, um, so that will be coming in the near-ish future. <laughs> so. And that's a key piece. I love how you know research and quality improvement come together to inform policy. So there's so much to get mm -hmm. involved in when it comes with EMS data and how important these data are to helping achieve better patient outcomes. And we have another audience question I want to make sure that we work in. And again, it's about resourcing. So Bruce asks about whether there was any data around whether or not the receiving facilities had an interventional radiologist available or if they might have been leaning on like a cath lab cardiologist or something else. That's not uh, information that's uh, available and get with the guidelines, unfortunately, the, the source that we link to. Yeah, we do survey uh, hospitals that participate to get some sense of their resources and availability, but that's not something you can immediately tell from the data. Right. Absolutely. And so I'm going to pop us, a picture speaks a thousand words, right? So I'm going to pop us over here to figure two, because this is the drum roll please moment of the study, looking at the, the variation in performance of these six pre-hospital metrics. And so I'll, I'll defer to the authors first to pick out your key points. I certainly have a couple of things I want to highlight, but what did we see overall when it came to these measures? Well, the first thing I always point out when I'm presenting this information at different settings is that we are uh, completely reliant on whether or not something was documented. So I'm going to use the word done or not done, or I'm going to sort of imply that sometimes in my language. But what I mean is we could measure it being present or we couldn't measure it being present based on the documentation. Um, so just sort of if you take a squinty view of the of the bar graph, you can see that uh, in general, we're about 50% or better across these six measures, with a notable exception of glucose being really glucose check being really, really high and last known well documentation being really, really low. And, um, you know, our, our sort of interpretation of that is that's probably 
the way that data is captured showing up in our overall counts. So uh, glucose check is a place that has a very rigid place to be documented that is easily found. And last known well documentation, although it does have a place within the EMS registry where in theory it ought to be, depending on the documentation practices of uh, paramedics or their EMR software, it may show up any one of a number of places within the pre-hospital data that we use and consequently doesn't always show up where we are. So um, I think there's my, my overall message at the top bar of that is we can already start to see what some of the likely troubles are with, um, with measuring these processes. But overall, uh, these numbers are very consistent with what we've seen published in other places. And so we're pretty confident that at least it, it reflects what this source of EMS performance can tell us. Absolutely. And I, I think you all in your discussion did a really great job at digging into some of these values may reflect a true clinical lack of performance, whereas others may reflect variation in documentation practices. And I think last known well is an interesting one for us to dig into it. And it speaks to how important it is for us to have operational definitions on these performance measures. So I'd like to hear some of your thoughts around, you know, last known well being low in documentation um, and also perhaps low in capture, but also the difference with onset time and other places where this may end up in an EPCR, but it's not making it into the research because it's not in the discrete data field. Justin may have some things to add here, but yeah, so, uh, you know, when, when we do education uh, around this, one thing that we always lean heavily into is the difference between a last known well time and a time somebody noticed it time. And, uh, and those two things in the uh, EMS record sometimes very innocently might wind up being called something different. Um, but uh, not, we didn't analyze this closely in this paper, but outside of it we have. And um, if you compare sort of last known well time as documented by EMS to last known well time documented in the hospital setting, there's a decent amount of agreement. Uh, oftentimes they're at the same time or close to it. There's some sort of random variation around it where maybe it's plus minus a couple hours. And then there's sort of a chunk that are off by eight hours or so. And I think that's sort of the uh, patient who woke up in the morning, called EMS in the morning, gets a documented last known well time that's really more of a noticed at time. And then they get to the hospital and they get that uh, last known well time corrected or changed to 10 o'clock the night before when they went to bed. Yeah, I, th I think that's a key piece here. Maybe Go this ahead, is a good Dave. time to jump in. There's there's some uh, great uh, back and forth in the chat, which we always encourage. Please, questions, comments, we love it. So um, one question here was about just uh, wondering about the missing data, and then um, and then from Daisy, uh, how do you uh, how do you think? Thanks for the great presentation and paper. How do you think the probabilistic matching process between EMS and hospital data would compare when using a different data vendor? So uh, I guess Michigan uses the image trend and um, you know, would it be different if the vendors were different, ESO versus image trend versus uh, Zoll and other uh, vendors for EPCRs? Those are super good questions. Um, maybe I'll tackle data missingness. Data missingness is a giant headache. 
it's uh, it's a problem and it's hard to deal with it. Uh, for important, so data missing this hurts us or, or comes into play for us for at a couple levels, right? Because if there's missing data around a matching variable, that patient never shows up. They fail to match and they're not in the data set. So we've got that little issue to deal with. And that one's pretty hard to see and pretty hard to correct for. Uh, we tried to analyze that in our previous paper by sort of comparing stroke patients who matched to stroke patients who didn't match. And using the probabilistic match, those two populations looked very similar. So we assumed to the extent that the that there was missing data resulting in a non-match, that it was uh, it was non-contributory or it was not introducing bias. In the analysis of these uh, measures here, missingness and non-performance, at least in terms of measures, are indistinguishable from one another. We don't know if somebody didn't do the thing or if they just didn't write it down. They're the same. For some of the cofactors that we're looking at, you know, some of the potential confounders, let's say, for example, race or some of the clinical factors like stroke scale, uh, there's a missingness rate there as well. And so in order, there's different ways you can handle that statistically. The one that we thought made the most sense is to effectively create nominal variables or ordinal variables that included a stratum for the missing data to basically treat a patient with missing data as a as their own stratum of whatever that thing is. So for example, stroke scores, rather than guess or create a program that would impute or replace those missing stroke scores with what we guess their stroke score might be based on averages or based on other characteristics that they have, we simply chose to treat those people as their own entity. Uh, last known well time maybe is a more obvious example that you can use. It's, it's missing a lot of the time, but many of the time when it's missing, it's because nobody knew, uh, which is a legitimate, Thing. And so we treated somebody with no missing or, or with a missing uh, last known well time as their own category in hopes of basically allowing ourselves to adjust our other comparisons for, for those distinct individuals and, and not lose their information or guess about it. Yeah, the missing data piece is always a big challenge. And I like that, you know, Leaning on imputation only works when you're pretty sure the data is missing at random. And as you mentioned, the data here are probably not missing at random. Probably a good reason underlying that. I was um, I was going to mention that that's one of the major things that we work on in our program is is data quality and data missingness. Um, and so one of the major things that Justin is currently working on, because there are several data vendors that agencies use throughout our state. Um, is working with each of those vendors to create a training uh, for abstraction for just specific to stroke. Um, so Justin actually um, just worked with ESO to develop a training um, that was distributed to our EMS partners about three weeks ago. Um, and he's working with various other vendors to, to do that too. So we don't have this issue with missingness, um, at least from the EMS side. So um, I think we're getting to the point where with many of the, the, the partners that we have, that missingness is becoming less of a problem, I would say. And we're actually starting to be able to look more at like actual performance. Um, but this is, you know, since we, we first started creating these reports and creating these linkages, um, you know, EMS, I don't think the EMS, our EMS partners were actually really looking at this data from the state system before because it just went somewhere and they weren't getting it back. So I love, I love this comment. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think just being able to 
when we know uh, and get feedback back from what we've put in, right? Then we suddenly are aware of what what's missing, right? And can actually help put it in. Uh, yeah. But when we keep putting stuff into a database and nobody <laughs> ever tells us anything about it, then we don't care, right? right. Yeah. Um, and and I do think you know if you think back to cardiac arrest and Oudstein and having. Uh, dashboards that say, hey, you didn't tell us if there was bystander CPR or not. Um, stroke could very well have those same markers for us so that we can't really enter a, a differential or a potential uh, uh, diagnosis of stroke without being asked, hey, did you actually collect a blood glucose? Because I may have, but if I just didn't happen to scroll down to the right spot within the right PCR, and put in the 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 uh, blood glucose measurement, then I or or did the blood blood glucose measurement put it in my narrative, but didn't check on the box. There's so many ways in which I think, uh, and and I'm talking about any and all software, so no vendor in particular, uh, is uh, just more of a barrier to actually informing what happened than it is to you know just can I just make sure that I give you what you wanted. So uh, I love this concept of, of educating the vendors and, and the agencies about what are the mandated reporting uh, elements and then, and then agreeing to them. Yeah. Every time we, we do an education, we have an educational opportunity based on, you know, using like through the different data vendors, we'll, we'll see a real um, improvement, I think, in the, in the data uh, for the, for performance, whether it's performance or, um, uh, actually like entering that information into those specific areas. So, yeah, even rule validation, um, uh, in terms of culture of safety, I, I just love the concept. We, we were chastised for many years, but because we couldn't enter the mileage, but then all of a sudden when, when it was time to, uh, start transporting and we had to enter a mile number, then it was a, a, a rule validation and all of a sudden there was nothing missing and we had no problem. So um, so just in, in human factors engineering, helping the brain kind of go, when we're dealing with this in real time uh, as a decision aid, I think it would be great to, to kind of go, look, have you thought about this? Um, wonderful. I, I have a question just about in the paper, uh, sorry to jump in, I'm just gonna, while I have the mic, um, you have an adjusted um, and unadjusted, and maybe you were going to get to that here in a next table, but um, you, you had a very interesting conclusion just about uh, diversity and, and disparate care in terms of equity. And, um, and I wondered what that adjustment and, that, and if you could explain that regression that you did to do those adjustments. Um, because you you have a very interesting statement here. Black race was associated with lower odds of EMS compliance for several measures, but once you made the adjustment, then it it, it was not, and it seems to be reassuring with respect to equity. So I'm wondering what that adjustment is, and if you can explain a little bit about that that logistic regression. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was one of our interest because one of our key priorities in this grant is to identify and look for um, disparities in stroke outcomes uh, by race, which definitely exist in Michigan and elsewhere. Uh, 
when we were doing, so these multivariable analyses, the, the hope is to kind of look at the entire web of factors that may or may not be associated with some outcome and then adjust them for confounding and for each other in order to see which things are independently predictive of the outcomes. And so what we observe, the, so the unadjusted column represents looking at each of these variables in isolation. Uh, age, for example, was age associated with the likelihood of a stroke scale being documented. And, uh, and so that entire column is just that variable standalone. The adjusted column is the column where we have our final model that included all of the important um, confounders and adjustment factors that were that were included in the multi-level models that we used. So we went through a process where we basically uh, dumped in all of our available um, uh, potential confounders and sort of analyzed them individually to see which ones were important. And then we did several at once to see which ones remained important. And then we dropped ones that are uh, that were not individually important. And then we're left with a final model. And so the adjusted numbers that you see there are the result of that model. Basically, it's the independent association of that factor with performance of one of these quality measures uh, after adjustment for all the other factors. And the, the most interesting change, I think, was this sort of observation about uh, black stroke patients compared to white stroke patients and others is that we, when we only looked at race, we saw that there was an association, it was a negative association between black race compared to whites uh, for performance of several, I don't remember exactly how many of these measures um, that, was, that was found in. After we included things like the severity of stroke, the type of stroke, uh, and the age of patients, and importantly, uh, clustering of outcomes by location, uh, we found that, that um, uh, the race variable in general and the specifically the tier of, of black versus white um, stopped being statistically significant, which would imply that something else among our cofactors uh, explains the observed relationship between race and the outcome that we saw in the unadjusted factor. Now, which of those things is the, is the reason for that is a little harder to parse out. You can sort of drop things from the model sequentially to try to see when uh, when the variable went from significant to non-significant, uh, which is, there are some problems in trying to parse that out because it matters which order you drop things in and, and it, um, it's, a, it's a difficult problem to separate out. One of the factors that seem to be really important consistently though is adjusting for clustering by uh, location. And so it appears that there is, um, uh, by, by splitting out and analyzing things within specific destinations, so we, by our sort of second level modeling, by basically uh, analyzing our patients in clusters by EMS agency and destination hospital, um, we see um, that alone seemed to result in the biggest change uh, when I did sort of try to parse that out, but I wouldn't be confident enough to say that that was the cause of any of this. It's merely uh, a speculation based on the way the, the numbers look.
Right. I think that what this shows is there's a signal that there's definitely more research to be done and that, you know, the study's goal wasn't to answer every single question, but I do think that it provides a nice template and framework for us to say, hey, here's a couple more questions that probably weren't their own analysis. And since I have the bike, I'm going back to table three or table four because it's table three. It actually is my favorite table because there's such an important point here that I want to make before I give it back to the authors for last points and wrap up. And this is, so in table three, it's the mean, median, and 90th percentile of the agency performance. And in EMS, we talk about benchmarking all the time. And it drives me crazy. I get on my soapbox about it because I think we use the benchmark to try to go back to the middle, right? But here, you've given us such a valuable tool with the 90th percentile and in the agencies with the more stable estimates who had at least 10 stroke patients. So something I would encourage our audience to do as you look at this table is to say, okay, let's talk about last known well. That was where the lowest performance was at about 22% at the median agency, but there's agencies that are achieving almost three times that. And so our thing in EMS that we should be doing is finding those agencies and seeing what they're doing differently that we can replicate to achieve that good performance. Uh, so thank you for putting in 90th percentile. Uh, thank now, you. I, I think one of the, for benchmarking, I think one of the big challenges for stroke is what is the right number? You know, as exactly. soon as you call something a measure, the immediate assumption is, well, it ought to be 100%. And maybe for certain patients, that could be true. But at the same time, if you're transporting someone whose stroke symptoms began a month ago, um, I'm not sure that some of the urgency that you need to have in the early setting is as important. So perhaps uh, there's also the reality that maybe we can only recognize some percentage of stroke patients. It's not realistic to believe that without a CAT scanner or an MRI in our rigs, we're gonna be able to correctly identify every stroke patient. So uh, our hope was to sure to show the, the, the spread of performance. And I agree that one of the best utility of, of, of this analysis overall is to say, well, what can we target? Who's doing stuff well? Where are their problems? And what are the reasons that people who do well do well? And what are the reasons that people who scored lower scored lower? Maybe it's documentation, maybe it's the way the EMR works, maybe it's something about practice, maybe, you know, there could be any, this, this gives us places to look for things. Absolutely. It's an important signal that tells us that there's some drivers that we can go uncover now. So I really, really love this table. And now I know that we only have a couple of minutes left, so I do want to give uh, rights of last words to our authors and uh, if there's any key takeaways that you want our audience to keep in mind, or if you'd like to share anything about you know, what's next in this line of work, we would love to hear it. Um, so we could just go around with our authors. I can start with you, Adrian. Great, thanks. Um, this is a great discussion. And um, gave, actually just sort of thinking through our discussion today gave me a lot, of, a lot more ideas of things that we should be looking at. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> I think just one of the key takeaways um, just from this discussion for me um, is that we want to make sure that um, we, we continue to focus on making sure that our partners and the people who are putting information into the system are getting it back and they understand the value of that um, and that we are looking at the information um, in a critical way and we're making sure that we're providing the opportunities um, to improve the measures, not just data quality, but actually performance. And so I think um, just working from the stroke side of things, we've noticed that the data gets better 
across the board for everything, not just for stroke, but when you're, they're actually paying attention to what they're putting into the tool, uh, it, it just continues to get better. So um, I think just making sure again, that we're, we're uh, providing information back to our partners is uh, the key takeaway for me. I love that takeaway. It's so important to give the data back and let us look at it so that we can make it even better. All right, and Justin, any last words or next steps from you? I think Adrian took all mine, but I will add- <laughs> Those were um, good. Yeah, that was good. But yeah, obviously um, educating our EMS providers. And I think like we're kind of doing now, focusing on the, the vendor uh, training. Um, you know, as we're seeing things are called different, um, elements are called different things depending on the software vendor. So really focusing on each um, software vendor and try to improve documentation. So, um, but yeah, definitely feedback, giving feedback to our EMS providers is, is key. Yep, and focusing on that data quality is a real important first step so that we can then go focus on what drivers we should be acting on. So I love that as well. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And Dr. Ostema, I will give you last words before I carry us out. Thank you so much. Uh, I echo everything that uh, that my colleagues have have said. I think that this type of program has uh, has value only in in as much as it um, helps us gain a better understanding of what the reality is out there and what's actually helpful. And you know, sort of to that end, I see the next step of this is tying these things in toward hospital outcomes and say, you know, I think it's a much more powerful um, educational outreach approach to highlight uh, just how much impact EMS can have on a stroke patient's outcome and on their care, uh, because it is significant. And I think that a good pre-hospital care, high quality pre-hospital care has the potential to really meaningfully and positively impact the outcome of patients. And I couldn't agree with that more. This integrated care continuum is so important to understand to reach those better patient outcomes. And I'd like to thank you all again for taking your time and sharing this great work with us. I know it was no easy feat to take on that work and then get it published. So can't, really just want to appreciate you for, for doing that and taking the time to share with our audience. And now I have the unfortunate task of carrying us out. The hour has gone by super fast. Um, but before we leave, I want to remind the audience that we do have the sister version of this podcast on education research. It will be Friday, February 24th. And we'll be back here with the clinical version of the podcast, second Monday of the month, which would be March 13th. So thank you all the audience for your questions and participation and look forward to seeing you all next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey, and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Music